0: You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everybody here this morning, and... Uh, you know the the sunshine and the rain still dripping off the roof. We got it all today, I think, and that's uh, that's a good thing. We can sure use all the rain we can uh, we can get. Um, please turn to John chapter five. Me in John chapter five this morning. Most of you know that Islam is the religion started by a man named Muhammad in the early seventh century A.D. You probably also know that the followers of Islam are called Muslims and that their book of Scripture is the Quran. You may also know that the Quran actually has quite a bit to say about Jesus. Uh, the Quran recognizes Jesus as a prophet. You might even know that the Quran acknowledges that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin named Mary, and that he performed miracles. Did you know all that? That the Quran recognizes all that about Jesus? Okay. I mean, those are good things. Aren't they? Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary. Jesus did perform miracles. Is Islam looking better all the time? No. In fact, no, it is not. And there are some other things Islam teaches about Jesus that I think you need to know. Uh, Islam teaches that Jesus was created, not eternal, and I really appreciated Elvin's communion meditation this morning. It's really going to go right along with what we're talking about here in a lot of ways. Jesus was, Islam teaches that Jesus was created, not eternal. They teach that Jesus was formed by God out of the dust of the earth, just as Adam was. Here's something I did not know until I was researching this. Islam teaches that Jesus spoke when he was an infant. How many of you knew that? right me either oh did i see a hand maybe okay Um, according to muslim teaching mary was questioning at some point how they could talk to jesus as a baby in a cradle and then jesus replied to her out loud with words interesting I, i had no idea they taught that islam teaches that jesus came to prepare the way for muhammad according to islam jesus mission on earth was to take Allah's message to the Jews specifically. The message Jesus was to herald was that Allah's supreme prophet, Muhammad, was coming. Uh, In the religion of Islam, then, Muhammad is considered the supreme prophet of Allah. All other men, prophets or otherwise, are beneath him. Therefore, in the Islamic view, Jesus is inferior to Muhammad. You probably had that figured out. According to Islam, Jesus was never crucified or raised from the dead. The claim of Islam is that Jesus appeared to have been crucified and killed, but in fact, God took him to heaven until the time of his second coming, which they do believe in. Got a lot of things to talk about Jesus and what's going to happen when he returns. But one of the things they say is that when Jesus returns, he's going to live on earth and he's going to reach the age of 70 or 75, at which point he will suffer physical death and then at some point be resurrected along with all the Muslims to go to paradise, I presume. New things. I mean, I I don't know if you knew all that about Islam or not. I did not know all that until I was doing some of this research. But there are three more things that Islam teaches about Jesus that I want to mention here. These three things are all related, and they all have to do with our message today that comes from John chapter 5. And the first of these is that Islam teaches that Jesus was not God, okay? Very specifically. The Quran calls Jesus a prophet calls Jesus a servant, calls Jesus a messenger, but it clearly denies the deity of Jesus. Not only is he not God, Islam teaches that Jesus was not the Son of God. The Quran goes so far as to say that you are cursed if you call Jesus the Son of God. And Islam specifically states that there is no plurality of persons of God. Here's a quote from the Quran about what we call the Trinity of what the Bible calls the Godhead, how we understand the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons who are individual and distinct and who are at the same time the one true God. And no, I don't really fully wrap my brain around that either. But here's the quote from the Quran about that. O people of the book, and that's a reference to Christians, by the way, it can also be used for the Jews, but in this case it's a reference to Christians, Commit no excesses in your religion, nor say of Allah aught but the truth. Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than a messenger of Allah, and his word which he bestowed on Mary, and a spirit proceeding from him. So believe in Allah and his messengers. Say not Trinity. Desist. It will be better for you, for Allah is one Allah. Glory be to him, for exalted is he above having a son. In other words, he's He's too great to have a son. There, there's no son that could compare. To him belong all things in the heavens and on earth. And enough is Allah as a disposer of affairs. Now, we don't need any son of God. We don't need any other person of God. There is no other person of God. There is no son of God. And Jesus is not God. These are the teachings of Islam. G- Islam teaches that Jesus never claimed to be God. Islam teaches that Jesus never even claimed to be the Son of God. And while it is true that Jesus never says the words in this order, I am God or I am the Son of God, He did use words that are the equivalent of these statements. And in John chapter 5, starting in verse 16, we're going to look at some of these words of Jesus and talk about what they mean. Today's message is called, Jesus is God, says who? Okay, John chapter 5, starting in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, we have to backtrack just a little bit and go back to what happened last week. And we'll talk about that as we go along here. I Say what happened last week. I mean, what we studied in the uh, earlier part of John 5 last week. But you go clear back to Exodus chapters 20 and 31. There's another uh, one in, in chapter 23. And God gave the Israelites the command to do no work on the Sabbath day. Exodus 31.15, in fact, specifically says that anyone who does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. And we talked about this at some length this morning in our Sunday school class, uh, in the adult Sunday school class as we're going through Exodus. Just lining right up here. I didn't plan that. That's okay. Anyway, last week... As we were in the first part of John chapter 5, we saw the first sign of trouble when some of the Jews stopped the man who was carrying his pallet on the Sabbath, demanding to know why he was carrying his pallet on the Sabbath, because according to them, that was work. Well, if you remember the story, okay, if you remember the story, the man had been lame for 38 years. There he was, laying down there by the pool of Bethesda, hoping to get in the water for healing, uh, supposed healing powers that the water would have. And he'd been lame for 38 years. Jesus comes along, says, do you want to get well? <laughs> okay, yeah. And so uh, he says, uh, he told him to get up, pick up his pallet and walk. So that's the situation. So this man, he's carrying his pallet along because Jesus had just gotten done healing him after he'd been lame for 38 years. And these Jews start questioning him. What's the matter with you? Why are you carrying your pallet on the Sabbath? You can't do that. That's work. Well, the man explained what happened. That he, you know, I suppose either he explained he'd been lame for 38 years or they knew that. But he, he explained that somebody healed him. He didn't know what his name was at that point. And When they told him that, or when he told them that, they immediately demanded to know who it was that told him to pick up his pallet. How dare he tell you to pick up your pallet and walk? I mean, who cares that you were laying for 38 years? Who cares that you're now up walking around? I mean, how did that happen? We don't care about that. We care that you're doing this on the Sabbath. We care that you were healed on the Sabbath. That makes a difference to these people, right? To them healing was one of those things that was work that was forbidden on the Sabbath day. Now, we're not going to talk about the Sabbath uh, for today's entire message. You could. You could preach a message. You could probably probably preach several messages on this one aspect of the situation, but that's not what our focus is today. It's enough to say that the Jews considered Jesus to be a Sabbath breaker, and, and we understand why from the way the story has unfolded. Okay? And if they were right, that healing someone on the Sabbath, even though they'd been lame for 38 years, and telling them to pick up their pallet and walk, and then the man, having been healed, picking up his pallet and walking, that these were somehow violations of the Sabbath as God had given it, as God had intended it, then we would have a real problem here. Because then Jesus would be what they were accusing him of being, a Sabbath breaker. And by their law, by what it says there in Exodus chapter 31, he'd be deserving of being put to death for that. So there's an issue here. And Jesus had a reply for this, okay? Jesus' reply to this allegation is where we start with today's topic. And I have to ask the question, and we asked it during our, our Sunday school class, who instituted the Sabbath day? Whose idea was that? Well, God did. Okay, so then who said, don't do any work on the Sabbath? God said that, right? So who gets to define what is prohibited work and what isn't? It's God's Sabbath. God's the one who set it up. God's the one who gets to decide, right? So Jesus does two things here when he tells the Jews... This is, I I love this. I think he's having a little fun here. He says, my father's working until now, and I myself am working. What are you going to do with that, right? Yeah. First, by claiming God as his own father. They were right. He claimed to be equal with God. And this is a claim that Jesus will make many times in various ways. Second, by the way, did you catch that? He didn't say, I'm the son of God. He said, God's my father. Okay, what's the difference, right? But the second thing he did was he said that there is work that even God does on the Sabbath and that such work is not prohibited. You think back when the example that was used when the Sabbath was instituted, it's used about God resting from his work, right? Six days he took to create the, the heavens and the earth, everything that there is that exists. God made it all in six days. And what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. Okay. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that God stopped doing everything. It means that He stopped His activity of creation. Okay, we talked about this a little bit. But how many of you uh, who are employed, right? You get a day off. I'm assuming get a day off, right? You like your days off, yeah? How many of you want God to take a day off? Anybody want God to take a day off? I don't want God to take. I don't want Him to take the day off ever, right? Because. That would mean, okay, so God's only going to answer prayers and listen to prayers six days a week. That seventh day, you're on your own, okay? Completely no, no help from God that seventh day. What about this? How about, do you want God to sustain life only six days a week? You know, you and I live at the mercy of God. If he pulled the plug on that, I mean, this would be the bad way, right? All of us would, right now. You don't want... God to take the day off. Do you want God, the Holy Spirit, to guide you and protect you only six days a week? That Seventh-day Wellness. See, so you're in the training period those six days, and the seventh day, you've got to make your own. You want Him to, to desert you on the seventh day? I don't. I think you get the point. More to our topic today, though. Jesus did claim equality with God, which means He did claim to be God himself. We have it all right here. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be equal with God, which means he's claiming to be God. Those accusations of, well, Jesus never said that. Yeah, he did. Right here. He did. This is just one of many times that he did. Let's go on to verse 19, because this whole next section is about Jesus comparing himself to God. And it's a a lot of verses, but it won't Hopefully, seeing that bad when we go through it. Anyway, verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judgeth anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word... And believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man." Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear... I judge and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. That is that's a long bunch of verses. But there are six ways in this bunch of verses in which Jesus compared himself to God, the father. And just go through those pretty quick, I think. First, Jesus said that he did only what the Father does. He and the Father do the same things. They even do them in the same way. There is absolutely no inconsistency between the things Jesus did and the things God does. No conflict whatsoever. This is an important thing. I'm going to get sidetracked here for just a second, but this is a really important thing. Because sometimes people teach things that are supposedly about Jesus or about following Jesus or about the church that turn out to be at odds in conflict with some of the things that God has established elsewhere in Scripture. And so we look at those, and I don't mean Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, because I think there is a, a, a separation there. But I'm talking about even in the New Testament. There are things that people will, will teach that are at odds with what the Scriptures say. And we know that that's not right because God's word is from God. And so teaching that contradicts that or conflicts with that has to be at least examined carefully to see if, if we're completely off base, a little off base, on base because of a certain understanding or what. But we have to really start examining those things, right? There is no, absolutely no inconsistency between the things Jesus did and the things God does or in the way they do them. And Jesus is capable of doing whatever the Father does. Uh, Elvin mentioned here this morning about Jesus as creator. He's uh, mentioned that way in, uh, I believe it's uh, Colossians chapter 1, is a pretty powerful chapter when it talks about who Jesus is and what he's done. John chapter 1 talked about his power of creation. Whatever the Father can do, Jesus is capable of doing as well. And then he said something that made me think of it like this. Healing the lame man on the Sabbath, that's nothing. God the Father has the power to raise the dead back to life. And if he can do it, Jesus can do it too. That's the thing that we have to remember. He has willingly, well, I'm going to get sidetracked again. Jesus has willingly placed himself in subjection to the authority and direction of God the Father. Even though he himself is God, there is a, a, an order here that they willingly, mutually established, and Jesus has entered into that, but he has the same power, he has the same will, he has the same capacity, ability, all the same things that God the Father has, because Jesus himself is God. Now the second way Jesus compares himself to God the Father is that both have the authority to judge, and it says that God, Jesus says that the Father gave him the power of judgment, that's only half the equation. Even if I were somehow, you know, having an authority of that. And I came to you and I said, well, here, I'm going to give you the authority that is mine to give. Wouldn't you have to be qualified to carry out whatever authority it is I'm assigning to you? You think about that for a minute. To be able to perfectly judge, in our example here in verse 22, to be able to perfectly judge. Without any mistakes or errors of any kind, Jesus has to have the same knowledge as God. He has to have the same perfect character and nature as God. In other words, he has to be qualified to carry that judgment out. You can't just say, well, I've been given that power. Well, that's great. Unless you don't have the qualifications to fulfill it. And Jesus does. And then verse 23. There are many people, like Muslims or Jews or even some people who call themselves Christians, or some people who call themselves something else completely, who believe that they can worship the one true God without recognizing Jesus as his only begotten Son, and without recognizing Jesus as God. And according to this passage, you cannot. Jesus made an exclusive statement. All should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Now, for those who don't believe in Almighty God, the God of the Scriptures, there's no expectation that they would honor Jesus Christ. I understand that. person has no uh, belief in God whatsoever, or no belief in the God of the Scriptures. There's nothing that would lead me to think that they would even want to recognize Jesus or honor Him in any way. But all who claim to worship and honor the one that we know as Jehovah God, Yahweh, Elohim, the God of the Bible, however you want to describe him, all those who claim to worship and honor him are also required to worship and honor his son, Jesus. Honoring Jesus is not optional for those who would honor God. How about this one from verses 24 through 27? You know, God the Father has the power over spiritual life, just like he has the power over physical life. I mean, he's the origin of all life, both physical and spiritual. Jesus claimed that same quality for himself, to have that power. God the Father gives spiritual life to all who believe in God the Son. That's Jesus. Not only that, God the Father also gives spiritual life through God the Son. Jesus. John The gospel writer here already testified to that back in chapter 1, verse 4. In him, he said, and that's talking about Jesus there, John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The source of spiritual life, spiritual rebirth, like Jesus told Nicodemus about back in chapter 3, the source of spiritual sustenance is Jesus. And he has life to offer because he is God. And then the topic that often comes up in Christian circles, one of the things that is associated with the Christian faith more than maybe almost anything else. If we fast forward to John chapter 11, we'll come to the resurrection of Lazarus, and we'll get there in due time. You'll hear about this again when we get there. But I want to tell you about this today. I don't know how many times I've heard my dad preach about the resurrection of Lazarus, right? The resurrection of Lazarus. I mean, it's probably been at least two or three Hundred times that I've heard him preach about that. Something. Anyway, I think every time I've heard him preach about the resurrection of Lazarus, he always made the point that Jesus spoke Lazarus' name saying, Lazarus, come forth. And that if Jesus hadn't named Lazarus by name, all the dead buried there would have risen. Didn't you always say that? That's what I remember from those, from those messages, right? Right? That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Verses 28 and 29, he said, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb, that all who are in the tombs, and it doesn't have to be in a literal tomb, okay, it means all those who are dead physically, all who are in the tombs will hear his, that's Jesus, voice, and will come forth. All, right? Jesus has the power of resurrection in his voice. And all will be raised. But Jesus also has the power of judgment. So some will be raised to a resurrection of life, while the rest will be raised to a resurrection of judgment or condemnation. Now, what Jesus says here should not be interpreted as a salvation by works. Those who did the good deeds, those who did the evil deeds. Well, what constitutes doing the good deeds and what constitutes doing the evil deeds? It, 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 it Whether or not we are in Christ, in the Christian age, the church era in which we live, whether or not we are in Christ, and those are the ones who are then empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them from Ephesians chapter 2, you can go look that up, Uh, then those are the ones that will perform those good deeds by the uh, impetus and momentum of God's presence in their life. And then there are those, everybody else, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, who are not in Christ. And what are they going to do? Well, they're going to do whatever they want. And they might do some helpful things, but they won't be doing it by the power of God. They won't be doing it for the glory of God. And you, the way it's going to be categorized is that those deeds will be evil. Okay? No, don't, don't get hung up on that, that it's a, a works salvation. It's not. In John 11, again, when we get to the resurrection of Lazarus, just before that, Jesus will tell Martha about himself. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Now you think about that. It's so almost cliche. We take it so for granted in the church. The power of resurrection is exclusive to God. You don't get that anywhere else. There isn't anybody else offering that. Well, they might offer, but they can't deliver. And Jesus says that he has that power. Jesus is God. The sixth way that Jesus compares himself to the God the Father is that they provide the same testimony. The Old Testament standard for testimony is that every matter should be established by the mouths of two or three witnesses. You don't just listen to one story and go, Oh, well, I guess that's the way it is. Jesus did not make unsubstantiated claims about himself. And in the next section, the last section that we're going to look at today, we will be looking at four different witnesses that he appeals to that all back up the claims that he made about himself. But one of those witnesses, we'll talk about this one now, is God the Father. The Jews were upset because Jesus claimed equality with God. Well, and that would be a problem if he were not equal with God, in fact, but he is. And God himself backs up that claim already in, the, in Jesus' lifetime. There has been spoken testimony by God the Father. You remember, it wasn't in John. John doesn't record it, but at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, God himself says about Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's God, the Father, giving testimony about God, the Son. Later on in Jesus' ministry, hasn't happened yet. John, again, doesn't record this incident. And it just boggles my mind that he doesn't, but he doesn't. God will reaffirm his testimony about Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. Three disciples. Kind of what we call the inner circle. They were closer to Jesus than everybody else. They were up on this mountain. They saw Moses show up. They saw Elijah show up. And Jesus changed in appearance before them. Transfigured, we say. And again, they heard God himself say, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God providing additional testimony. We could even appeal to the third person of God. God the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, Jesus says that after he leaves his disciples, he will send the Holy Spirit. He calls him the comforter or the advocate, uh, the paraclete, whatever word you want to use, whatever word your, your translation uses. And the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin because people won't believe in Jesus. All three persons of God agree that Jesus is God. Let's go on to verse 33. And and as we do our four witnesses here, we'll just take each section of Scripture by itself rather than reading the whole thing and then coming back. So these four witnesses are given uh, in in this section that offer testimony that Jesus is who he says he is. The first is witness of of John the Baptist. Verse 33 says, You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning, that was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John the Baptist came. And we've talked a lot about John the Baptist already in this sermon series. But here John points out, or excuse me, Jesus points out that John was well received by many. I mean, a voice crying in the wilderness, right? But what was he crying? The people that were coming to him, they were more willing to accept John than they are to accept Jesus. At least some of them. And John the Baptist made it clear, he was not the Messiah, but Jesus is the Messiah. What did he say? Make straight in the wilderness a way for the Lord. Right? John also says that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. And as the Jews would have rightly recognized, only God, only God can take away sin. And so, what does that make Jesus, right? So that's the testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 36, Jesus said, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. Even more powerful than John's testimony is the testimony of the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus performed. Now, John, the Gospel writer, has shared a few of those with us already, including... Jesus healing a man's son from a distance of 20 or 25 miles. The miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus did provided evidence that he came with the authority and power of God. Now when he he performed those things and he, he taught what he taught about himself and other things those miraculous signs and wonders backed up his claims. And so, as a result, his claim of equality with God could be trusted. Now, you think about other people in the New Testament that were out there healing people. Okay? Later on, we see, or even during Jesus' ministry, Jesus gives his disciples authority to heal. Uh, later on uh, in the book of Acts, we see the disciples, Peter and, Aunt, uh, Peter and, and uh, John, for example, on the way to the temple. We see the apostle Paul doing some healing, Right? Did that make them God? No. Did they claim to be God? No. What did it do? It validated their message, which is Jesus is God. That's what they're all saying. They're all saying the same thing. And so the miracles, whether from Jesus or from these other people, all point to the same truth. Well, what about, we talked about verse 37 and 38 already. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Now, we already mentioned the testimony of God the Father regarding Jesus. But Jesus also makes the point that those who reject him, those who reject Jesus, do not have God's word abiding in in them. Now, we might say, well, yeah, but think about these people and how they received this. The Jews to whom Jesus was speaking would have prided themselves on their knowledge and observance of God's word. Jesus said they didn't get it at all. They had turned God's word into a rule book to follow instead of the basis of a living and active relationship with God. Isaiah chapter 28 says that to those who do not listen, God's word becomes order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. The New International Version, I love the way that puts it there uh, from Isaiah 28. It says that the word of the Lord to them, to those who do not listen, will become do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day fulfilled that description exactly. They were so concerned. They were so concerned that a man who had been lame for 38 years was walking around carrying his pallet on the Sabbath that they, did, they didn't even stop to wonder what it meant that a man who had been lame for 38 years was walking around at all. So they, they missed the point. And so... Yeah, I know I got a little off the track there, but he tells them that. He says, you do not have the word of God abiding in you. Go on to verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Again, it's Jesus speaking. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my word? And again, I really appreciated Elvin sharing here during the communion time all the ways that Jesus is integral in the scriptures all the way from first to last. Again here, the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking, these were the premier scriptural scholars of their day. Most of them, maybe all of them, had the first five books of the Bible completely memorized. Now, you you go back and you look at the first five books of the Bible and you think about what a task that would be, all right? There's nothing wrong with that. But for them, knowing the Scriptures was all there was. And sure, you know, they, they adhered to their own interpretation of the Scripture, but they didn't really understand it. They didn't accept it the way it was given and for the purpose for which it was given. Jesus told them that they were so busy busy studying the scriptures and patting each other on the back that they missed seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of those scriptures. And is there a lesson for us here? I have to say that there is for me. Because knowing the scriptures is not the same thing as understanding and living the scriptures. You know, how I'm doing in your eyes, or how you are doing in my eyes, really is not the issue. The issue is whether either of us has submitted to the authority and direction of God's Word, which would lead us directly to Jesus if we would only pay attention. Now, there's one more level of authority here expressed by Jesus. And John doesn't mention the Jews taking offense at it, though I'm sure they do. Catch that last statement Jesus said. He said, if you do not believe the writings of Moses, how will you believe my words? Did you hear that? Jesus just put his own teaching on the same level of authority as the Old Testament scriptures. And how did the Jews regard the Old Testament? Why, it was the word of God, of course. Jesus just claimed to speak at the same level of authority as God. Any critic Of the Bible, who says that Jesus never claimed to be God, clearly isn't paying attention. Now, we began this morning by talking about some of the things Islam teaches about Jesus. And you know, Islam may once have been, or may once have seemed at least, like a remote religion that had little or no effect on our lives as Americans or even on our lives as Christians. And today, I think we all recognize that the situation has changed dramatically for both Americans and Christians in regard to the impact Islam is having in our world. Even if we did not have the violence in the world brought by militant Islamists, we do have the promotion of false doctrine concerning Jesus Christ. And you might say, but isn't Christianity the world's most prominent religion? So how bad can it be? Well, right now about 1% of the population of the United States is Muslim. Pretty small. That number is expected to more than double in the next 35 years, but that still doesn't sound very significant, does it? Just a little over 2%. How about this? Today, Muslims make up about 23% of the world's population compared to the 31% that claim to be Christian. By 2070... If I've done my math right, that's 54 years from now. It is projected that Muslims will outnumber Christians worldwide. So how important do you think it is for you to have an accurate understanding of who Jesus really is? How important is it for you to be able to share the truth about Jesus with other people? I would say that it's absolutely essential for you to know and promote sound doctrine concerning Jesus In our world. Jesus said that he is God. Uh, The gospel writer, John, started his gospel by proclaiming that the word, Jesus, is God. John the Baptist said he had come as one to prepare the way of the Lord, God, Jesus. The miracles that Jesus did testify to the fact that he is God. God himself spoke at Jesus' baptism, again later at the transfiguration, calling him my beloved son. And the entire Old Testament pointed the way to Jesus as God. With Isaiah, you go back and read Isaiah, things that uh, uh, Elvin mentioned, the passage, was it in uh, uh, Malachi? The son of righteousness risen with healing in his wings, the, you know, Christmas carol, right? Okay? It's more than that. It's, it's good doctrine about Jesus. Well, uh, Isaiah specifically called Jesus, in the prophecies there, referring to him, Mighty God, called him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Right. Now, if you're already a Christian, I urge you to increase in your knowledge and understanding of Jesus as God. Be prepared to explain his deity to others. The truth about Jesus is being obscured more and more. You can make a difference in making the truth about him known and understood. Those statistics I quoted a few minutes ago about when the number of Muslims in the world will outnumber Christians in the world doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. If the truth about Jesus is put forth in a way It's up to the people to decide and and it's the power of God's word whether they'll respond or not. Maybe it's inevitable. I don't know. But at least could more be done? I think more could be done, right? You can make a difference in making the truth about Jesus known and understood. And if you're not a Christian yet, I pray that you'll come to the understanding that this is a very pivotal issue Only if Jesus is God, does having faith in him mean anything. Listen to that again. Only if Jesus is God, does having faith in him mean anything. If Jesus is not God, then he is a liar. He's a fraud. And his word and his promises are false. But if Jesus is God, and we've got a lot of testimony here, a lot of different witnesses, all pointing to the same thing, saying, yes, He is. Jesus is God. Then He truly is Lord, the Savior. He's the only choice that makes sense for you. You need to accept Him as Lord and Savior on His terms, Because he was the sinless sacrifice, because he was crucified for your sin, because he did rise from the dead, then your faith in him makes all the difference. Do you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Christ, and the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sin, confess your faith in him to other people, and be immersed into him for the forgiveness of your sin? Would you live for him daily? testifying to the truth of who he really is. And if you're ready to have that kind of...